the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt, but I'm not there today. Morgan Ortigas is in for Hugh Hewitt's show today. We greatly appreciate Morgan. You know her as the spokeswoman for Mike Pompeo at the Department of State for the United States government through those years. And she's now running lots of national security events with Polaris National Security. And she knows this stuff inside and out. I can't think of a better guest host with the world in the grip of a crisis that could go on and expand. And Morgan will be able to figure out whatever is going on. Take it away. And thank you, Morgan Ortigas. Hey, good morning, everybody. So I uh, just want to thank Hugh Hewitt for that wonderful intro. I got to tell you, every time, this is this is the second time I've guest hosted for Hugh whenever he's been out. It's such an enormous honor and privilege. I've been listening to him for my whole life, really. So for all of you who are his loyal viewers and his listeners, I'm going to make this a really fun but intense pack three hours because of everything that's going on around the world. I, I think some of you know me, um, but if you don't, let me just remind you some of my background. You know, I've spent a lot of my career working in and out of the Middle East. In fact, I was in the Middle East on Saturday, October 7th. I, I had just landed when these attacks started happening. And it was a it was a surreal moment, especially for somebody like me, who was a part of the Abraham Accords negotiating team in the last administration. So just to remind everybody what Abraham Accords was in the Trump years, uh, in fall of 2020, we were able to achieve peace deals, four peace deals between Israel and Arab states in 26 years. Um, and, and I was, I have a little girl. She's almost three. So I was pretty very visibly pregnant at the White House when we were unveiling these accords. And at the time, and, and some of you who have been following me, uh, you know, my family and I are Jewish. My daughter is Jewish. And at the time I was thinking, what an amazing moment for the world. What an amazing moment for the Middle East that my Jewish daughter is going to grow up uh, with all of these Gulf Arab states, uh, Morocco, Sudan, having recognized Israel. And, and it's going to be a completely different Middle East for her. I was inspired. I was filled with so much hope. This comes after I served um, in Saudi Arabia at our embassy there 2010 and 11. I was in Baghdad for, for a bit in 2007 with uh, USAID and then spent a lot of time as an intel analyst on the Middle East. So I, I had spent most of my career focused on the Middle East and, until that point. And I was so hopeful three years ago. In fact, just three weeks ago, I was posting pictures from the White House, remembering that anniversary and really hoping that, of course, Saudi Arabia would come into those Abraham Accords and, and would be the big behemoth in the Middle East to recognize Israel. And it was so shocking on October 7th, just a week and a half ago, um, to wake up in the Middle East. I, I was actually going to be on my way to Israel uh, just a few days later. I was going to be in Israel that entire week uh, speaking at a conference on Abraham Accords about Arab and Israeli peace uh, and economic integration. And just to think 
that I, and by the way, there were some Arab delegations that were headed to this conference that I was speaking at. We had, we were going to have a lot of the Arab world, uh, represented at this conference. Uh, and just to think how much things have changed in a week and a half since October 7th, that we were going to talk about, uh, security, economic relationships, more countries recognizing Israel to now the images that we've seen are the worst uh, terror attack in, in modern history uh, on Israel on the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, obviously on a Jewish holiday, to see the death and the devastation. But what's even more troubling in the past few days is to see how the Arab street, because of the disinformation out there, and by the way, a lot of this inf- disinformation is being put out there by our own members of Congress. We'll go into that. But to see... Uh, the disinformation put out there and watch the Arab street actually almost align with messaging that you're hearing from Iran and from Hezbollah against Israel um, is devastating. And I think, friends, we are in we are in the most perilous time that, that I can think of, you know, really since almost since 9-11, as it, as it relates to the turmoil um, that we're going to see in the Middle East. We've already started seeing uh, protests at U.S. embassies around the Middle East. Uh, uh, we're having to basically evacuate the, the embassy in Beirut, protest at Israeli embassies. I watched them yesterday in Tunisia. You might have seen of this on X. I still want to call it Twitter, but X. Uh, you saw that they burned down a synagogue in Tunisia. And I tweeted out, uh, or I, do you say X'd out? Tweeted out, Dwayne? I'm not sure what you say. Our, our buddy we, Dwayne will be... We're, we're, going, we're going with tweet. Okay, I, I, we're going to keep saying tweet. I've gotten so used to it. But I tweeted out, this is exhibit A for why the Jewish people need a state. You know, just burning down a, a, a very old, a very historic uh, synagogue in Tunisia, which, by the way, had the Torah scrolls in it. So I just wanted to tell you all of this. I'll, I thank again. I thank all of the you loyal uh, Hugh Hewitt listeners and and those of you who watch the video feed. Uh, I, again, I am I am so honored, beyond honored, to fill in for this legend. Um, and, and I just want to give you you know my perspective because I for me, I'm not just commentating on this news. I've lived the Middle East. I've analyzed the, the Middle East. Uh, I've been in and out for you know 15, 17 years at, at this point. Um, and I was a part of, listen, a really small team uh, on the Abraham Accords team. And, and it is so incredibly frustrating that we passed these historic peace deals to Biden and his team. And what have they done with it? They, they've squandered it. They've pissed it all away. So one of the things, I, I don't know if you guys saw this, um, but I don't really understand the logic of why. Biden and his team wanted to go to the Middle East um, so quickly. Listen, perhaps they did want to negotiate a ceasefire. Perhaps they wanted to delay what Israel's doing in Gaza. Perhaps they want to review the war plans together, which, you know, is fine. But it was jarring for me to watch the president boarding Air Force One and to see Jordan and Egypt and others cancel their meeting with the president basically as he's boarding the steps. Uh, that is, as, as many of you know, as Hugh said in the introduction, I was the spokesperson and, and senior advisor to Mike Pompeo 
I went all the, around the world with him for two years. We were international probably half the month. I, I have just never witnessed and seen anything like that, that you get the president of the United States uh, headed towards a war zone, headed towards, you know, to do really important diplomacy, and they cancel a meeting going up the steps. So, number one, that's disconcerting. Uh, thanks for doing that, Jordan. Considering that we give you $3 billion in aid, that should be reviewed by the Congress, by the way. But then the next thing that happens is, you know, I, I don't know if sending Joe Biden anywhere actually helps. Um, and that's because, as we all know, he's pretty gaff prone. He's been gaff prone his whole career, but now in his advanced age, even more so. So I want to play cut five for you guys. I just want you to listen to what the president said on the Air Force One to the press. Cut number five. Look, and I'm not suggesting that Hamas deliberately did it either. It's that old thing. I don't know how to shoot straight. First time Hamas has launched something that didn't function. So those planes are very noisy. I will tell you, I was kind of, uh, the, the background noise brings up, you know how sounds and smells bring up memories. All of that background noise brings up a lot of memories for me being on a plane for two years with Mike Pompeo. But the president said, I'm not saying Hamas did it on purpose. They need to learn to shoot straight. Um, what, like, I'm almost at a loss for words in the monologue. I, I don't know what he, what he means by that. Um, the terrorists need to learn to shoot straight. Remember that this is a designated terrorist group. Uh, this is a group that just perpetrated the worst killing of Jews since the Holocaust. And it is just an, an, an entire indictment on his Iran policy. But one thing I also, I think that we got to bring up too, um, part of the reason that the president needed to go to the Middle East is because, as I talked about, the Arab street turning on the United States, turning on Israel. And part of that, re, part of the reason why that happened is because there was a lot of disinformation that came from sitting members of Congress in the United States. Yes, you heard me right. So uh, some of my least favorite members of Congress, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar. Um, now, it wasn't, to, to be fair to the two of them, basically the entire mainstream media around the world uh, and all of the Arab states rushed to judge a drill whenever there was a hospital attack that killed hundreds of people. Uh, it was immediately, uh, Hamas immediately said this was Israel and everyone believed it. Everybody believed a terrorist organization, an organization who just a week and a half before were beheading babies, were burning whole families alive, were cutting fetuses, small babies out of the, out of their mother's womb. And the whole world believed them until what happens? Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar amplify that disinformation and there starts protest overnight around the world, around the Middle East at U.S. embassies. Uh, the visuals were very haunting for me because, you know, we had some protests against the U.S. embassy in Baghdad uh, under Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And I, and I tweeted out at the time, and I mean this seriously, these members of Congress who are spreading this disinformation, it has now been proved from the United States, from the Pentagon, from Biden, from Israel, and from independent observers that this was Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad misfiring, right? So these members of Congress spread this disinformation uh, without correcting. Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar have not taken their tweets down. 
They're going to get American diplomats killed. They've got to stop spreading this disinformation. And by the way, so do mainstream media outlets around the United States and around the world. Stop believing a terrorist organization, the first thing that they say. But, you know, listen, as long as they can blame the Jews, as long as they can blame Israel, they will do it. And you know what? Some Americans are going to get killed because of this. I hope you guys will join me. We've got a lot more in the next three hours. Thank you. Good morning to everybody around America. I hope you've had some coffee. Um, I'm on number two. We'll see how many we get through until 9 a.m. Uh, listen, we have somebody on the line uh, who is a hero to me. For those of you who are just turning in, uh, spoiler alert, this is not Hugh Hewitt. This is Morgan Ortegas, uh, former spokesperson for Mike Pompeo. But the person on the line is someone who I have just admired for many, many, many years. Uh, Congressman Mike Rogers. Now, there are a few of them, right? There's another congressman named Mike Rogers from Alabama. We are talking to to the one from Michigan who was running for the Senate, used to be chair of the Select Committee on Intelligence in the House. Uh, Mike Rogers, good morning, sir. How are you? Morgan, it is always good to hear your voice. Thanks for having me on. So I, I do have to tell you, uh, I, I stole your idea uh, this year. And what I mean by that is I remember, I think it was in the 16 election, I think you had left Congress at that point, and you started interviewing presidential candidates on national security. And I thought it was amazing what you did. I've been doing that in New Hampshire, by the way, just interviewed Doug Burgum uh, on Friday. We've got some more candidates coming up. Uh, but I, I love that you did that. You have been a clarion voice on national security in our party for a long time. So listen, I'm going to toss the ball over to you right away to talk about Israel. The president just came back and just played the clip of him on Air Force One saying that Hamas needs to learn to shoot straight. So tell me, how do you think this administration, how is Biden handling the worst attack on the Jewish people since the Holocaust? Did, did he actually use the word shoot straight? Oh, no. He said that. Yeah, we just played it for he, he's I'll, I'll read it to you exactly what he said. He was saying this to the press gaggle on, on Air Force One. He said, I'm not saying Hamas did it on purpose. They need to learn to shoot straight. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Well, this is exactly why we're in trouble. This is exactly why they pulled out in Afghanistan and Russia invaded the Donbass. This is exactly why they give $6 billion to the Iranians uh, that they'll get eventually, by the way, uh, and try to continue to play footsie with them on uh, an Iran deal that only furthers Iran's interests. And we get a, uh, an Iranian-sponsored Hamas terrorist group attack into Israel that is unprecedented. I mean, these guys um, are making the United States of America a punching bag. Mm. And at some point, uh, we need to stand up and understand that projecting weakness uh, in the world that is, I'm, Morgan, you've been around this too, I've never seen it quite as dangerous as it is these days as it has been in a very long time because of the so much uncertainty and really lack of U.S. leadership. Uh, and, and, and I'm talking about engagement, not entanglement. Um, and I could go down the list on the things that they've done to make us more reliant on, well, Middle East energy is a great example. Right. So you were the chairman uh, on the Intelligence Committee in the House. This was obviously a massive intelligence failure uh, from the Israelis, by the way, and also from us. It doesn't appear that we actually knew this was coming. Uh, tell me, how do you think this happens? I mean, because the Hamas fighters, the documents that they found on the ones uh, that had passed away, they had detailed knowledge of the kibbutz, of uh, the, the electric grid, of, of how to avoid uh, iron, triggering Iron Dome, uh, that kind of thing. So, so tell me, how in the world do you think this happened? Well, I... I... 
I believe, and it's information that, that I have looked at over the last uh, week or so, that Iran was absolutely involved in, the, in yeah. assisting in the intelligence gathering portion of this. And so think about what Hamas did. And so there's two things where I think this failure happened. And this is really good for us to remember as Americans, because you can get lulled to sleep. And I think the administration gets lulled to sleep constantly. Right. When they are saying things, they, they were very clever. Um, they were talking on phone, they being Hamas, the terrorists in Hamas, were talking on phones they believed would be monitored by intelligence services and saying all the right things. Oh, we, you know, we got in the 21 war, the two-week war, where they tried to kidnap people from Israel. Uh, they really got it put to them. And so they were saying, oh, we're kind of done with that tactic. Maybe we should try something different. How about economic or whatever? Uh, you know, we still hate the Jews, but by the way, why can't we, you know, we'll figure something else out. And they were very uh, disciplined about that message, and they did it on phones that they believed would be monitored. They did it in other conversations that they believed we would, the Israelis would have human uh, spies in, engaged in. And they did it in social media. So they talked to every Israeli through social media platforms just about how Hamas was kind of uh, defanged. And what was interesting about that, it was so pervasive. Uh, and, oh, and again, one, one other part. They, they did this uh, economic thing where they would get, uh, it's like a working visa, I guess, where mm. Gazans could come into uh, Jerusalem to work, right? So they had free passage, which is a great way to have somebody actually work and collect uh, information, as, as you would know. And so if you think about all of that, it, and three days before, about maybe it was a week, before the attack, and I, a senior IDF officer was briefing that we have effectively deterred Hamas. And why? They were getting all of this disinformation, multiple channels of disinformation, and the Israelis bought it. Uh, in the United States, we clearly missed uh, something as well. Uh, it be interesting to see the aftermath of that investigation. But that lulling to sleep through in social media talking to regular citizens is really important because what do you think Russia, China, Iran right. learned from that? Uh, that you know what you want to you want to lull the bear to sleep over there in the United States. Uh, you know you just have this rampant social media conversation with people who aren't getting all of the facts. That's right. And, and so you, as I said, you were chaired the Homeland, uh, excuse me, the Select Committee on Intelligence in the House. Uh, you were in the FBI. You were in the Army, I understand, as well. Uh, long national security background. What made you decide at this moment to run for the Senate in Michigan? Two things. Uh, you know, everything looks broken to me, Morgan. If you look yeah. at Washington, D.C., it, it surely looks broken. Uh, you look at uh, what's happening in my home state, it's broken. So, you know, you start with the economy and inflation. It's something that we could have avoided. Uh, you talk about energy independence. I mean, this this government, the Biden administration, is making your gas prices and your grocery prices needlessly more expensive by the, their borrowing, spending, coming up with new government programs. And so I thought, listen, the, with the world as dangerous as it is, I think you need an adult in the room to have a thoughtful conversation. And politics has become... Uh, you know, there's a lot of screaming going on. As, as my, my dad used to say, his favorite uh, philosopher was Foghorn Leghorn, the cartoon character, who used to say, I, you know, boy, I see a lot of chopping, but I don't see a lot of chips. And my <laughs> argument was maybe that's a good philosophy to live by, Pop. But uh, it is that we just we really are going to have to start getting after these things. China wants to take our legs out from us. They're joining up in this weird way to take our currency 
uh, away from being the U.S. world reserve currency, which ha- will have a huge economic impact for us. And they're doing it right now. They're doing it in front of us. Uh, and our politicians uh, yeah. are talking about banning gas stoves. And, you know, China's talking about modular nuclear reactors. We have got to focus on what this problem set is. And I think I'm qualified to do that. You know, Mike, and we're seeing, as we see the images of President Biden boarding the steps of Air Force One, and we find out that the Jordanians and the Egyptians have canceled his meetings as he's boarding the steps, I think it was enormously disrespectful how that played out to the president. But at the same time, you juxtapose that with the images of Xi Jinping and Putin meeting together in China at China's Belt and Road Initiative conference. And they are they are basically opening openly mocking, uh, openly mocking the United States and democracies. Putin is Xi Jinping is at that conference. Um, I got to tell you, our enemies are together. They're aligned. Uh, Iran. Russia, China, even North Korea, uh, they have supply chains where they work together. Just talk to us about this precarious moment that we're in. As I said, when you see the images, Biden going up his stairs, you know, tiny countries like Jordan canceling meetings with him, and then Putin and Xi Jinping grinning and, and, and sort of taking a victory lap. Take us through what you think about that dynamic. Oh, no, and it's, this is real. And Morgan, you put your finger right on it. Which is again one of the reasons I thought you know we don't need some, to send someone to the Michigan uh, to the United States Senate from Michigan uh, that needs on the job training. We right. have got to get started right now. Um, and you, one that worries me the most. Well, let me back up. China has been saying for years that uh, the United they're going to beat the United States uh, not by firing a shot, but because they are soft and self-absorbed. If you look at our politics today. It's pretty hard to argue they're not getting close to being right. And we don't have a lot of time to unwind that. So when you get Russia, who is the first largest nuclear weapon country, uh, palling up with the third largest nuclear company. And by the way, China has the, the most modern nuclear fleet. And by the way, all of those missiles are the vast majority are pointed at the United States. And they're all, both rattling their saber. They're both challenging what would be the norms. Uh, and, you know, they're challenging our Navy in the South China Sea. They're, again, they're coming after our currency. They had a meeting about a month ago, uh, and this is all led by China, by the way. They had a mo- meeting about a month ago in South Africa uh, to, and with the BRICS nation. Some, some of your listeners, are, I'm sure, are familiar, but it's Bra- uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa. And they invited mm-hmm. Iran to come in and Saudi Arabia to come yeah. in. And they're trying to create an alternative basket of currency that pushes the U.S. dollar off of the, the trading reserve. And what that means necessarily is right now about, well, it used to be 78% of all transactions in the world were done in U.S. dollars because you could trust them. Right. Now they've pushed that down to about 57%, and they want to get it under 50%. What does that mean? It means they get to set economic policy in the world. They get to see, tell you what things you can buy at what price. Uh, it's really strategically smart. And we are just fumbling along with the Biden administration walking into this mess. Uh, it's it's maddening. Well, uh, you know, Mike, I don't know if you know this, too. And so for our audience who's listening, he's running for the Senate in Michigan. My husband's an auto industry guy. So Michigan, Detroit, it's kind of a, a second home for us. I love your state. To the people of Michigan, vote for Mike Rogers. What an amazing guy. We would be so lucky to have him in the Senate. Thank you so much, Chairman, former Chairman Mike Rogers. We'll be back soon. 
Good morning, everybody around America. I hope you have a hot cup of coffee. Uh, this is not Hugh Hewitt. This is Morgan Ortegas. I'm filling in for him until 9 a.m. So let's see. We've got almost a little over two hours. Sorry for that cough of mine. Ooh, early. Um, we will soon, hopefully, have former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren, uh, on the line with us. He was having some connectivity issues coming live from Israel uh, to us this morning. But in the meantime, while we try to get him back on the line, uh, just want to remind everybody what's going on in Israel and some new things this morning um, that we're seeing happen in Israel. Uh, of course, we know another day of rage is planned for tomorrow. Hezbollah has called for this. Uh, but also, if you look at what's happening around Israel, uh, here's some facts that I want to bring up as we try to get Michael Oren, uh, former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., back on the line. Uh, but first of all, we know that Hezbollah has repositioned troops from Syria to Lebanon. Now, just a reminder, everybody, we know these attacks against Israel on October 7th. And by the way, these attacks in America, uh, not just Israel, we have 30 dead Americans and at least 14 or 15 American hostages. We know that these attacks were sponsored, directed, and funded uh, by the Islamic Republic of Iran. And so I think we were able to get former Ambassador Michael Oren on the line. Great, fantastic. He's there. Um, good afternoon from Israel, uh, Michael. How are, how, how are things today? I know it must be different every single day. There's so much to unpack here. But give, give our audience the status of where you think things are in Israel today. Uh, hi, Morgan. Good to see you. Um, wait and see. Everyone's waiting. Uh, in, in the aftermath of the uh, of the president's visit, it was a very important visit, um, a major hug, a major shot in the arm, um, infusion of aid. Um, but, you know, as they say here, no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, some conditions also. Uh, the opening of a humanitarian corridor, which is a very heavy lift for this government. Israelis do not feeling, and particularly in a mood to help the Palestinians in any way. We don't, many Israelis do not view them as, as innocent bystanders, but as complicit. They voted for Hamas, they supported Hamas, they cheered Hamas, and they cheered the death of our, of our the butchering of our of our citizens. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a hard bit for the government. But if that's what the president needed for his space um, and time, um, then we had to do it, unfortunately. But we're waiting, we're waiting to see. I, I'm here, my, this is my son, Yoav, uh, Morgan, who's here, we're here. Uh, it everything. A lot of the kids aren't going to school. We um, let him talk. He's uh, an old veteran who's had a lot of experience with Hamas. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So, uh, you want to have him speak? Yes. Yeah, say something. Say hello. No, hello, hello, Morgan. Hello, everybody. Um, and uh, as of course, from the, we're all devastated by what's happened in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, we're trying to comprehend with everything. Uh, the fact that we don't feel safe anywhere is something that's been uh, very, very difficult for us and very difficult for us to, to explain to our children. Uh, and it's been difficult to kind of shadow them away from the, the, the pictures that are emerging everywhere. And it's just horrifying. And it really, it's something that we don't know how to cope with yet. You know, I, 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 it's so interesting. You just talked about your children and I, I feel the same way. I was in the Middle East on, on Saturday, October 7th, when this attack happened. I was just a few days later, I was headed to Israel. Uh, we were supposed to have the N7 conference, which uh, Dr. Oren, you may have been going to as well, a, a conference to, po- to promote economic prosperity, security, peace between Israel and Arab states. I, I obviously couldn't go into Israel once the attack started happening. Um, but, but Dr. Oren, you know, I have an almost three-year-old and it, it really, one of the hardest things about the past week and a half, as I keep thinking to myself, how do I explain this to her one day? You know, how do I explain to her that people 
will want to kill her simply because she's Jewish. Um, and, and I think that's what haunts the most haunting thing about this. And I've been in national security for almost 20 years. I've seen a lot. The images that I've seen out of Israel, uh, the, the, the murdering of families, the torturing of families, the specific way they attacked babies and children. I mean, I didn't, I don't even remember ISIS doing anything that sick and depraved. And, uh, I, I just, I, I think it has struck our conscience in a way that no other war really has because they so specifically went after children. So how do you, how do you, how do you stop that? How do you eliminate Hamas with all of the institutional difficulties and barriers that you have trying to get into Gaza? I'll just, I'll just, I'll just to your first point, Morgan. Uh, I remember growing up, you telling me mm. how you would have nightmares of Nazis coming and, and coming to your door. And, and growing up in Israel, I was always under the impression that, you know, this is the safest place for us to be as Jews and nothing like that could ever happen. And the yeah. fact that we're waking up to this new reality, like modern day, you know, Nazism, just mm. pure hatred, as you said, towards Jews. And the fact that I need to explain this to my kids and to, you know, help them cope with this. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's unbearable. And it's, it's not just it's not just the physical part. It's that so many of us are encountering so much anti-Semitism in the world. Right. At a time when Jews are getting massacred here, so many people, even people we've known, are you know supporting the other side, calling them militants, uh, yeah, putting them on an well, equal basis about in terms of you know the stories about the hospitals well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Michael Oren and his son. Uh, Michael was a former Israeli ambassador to the United States. We stand with the state of Israel now and always. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Morgan Ortegas, uh, but I hope that you'll join me again for the next two. We have two more hours together, so we've got a jam-packed morning. I'm actually really excited for the next guest. It's somebody who I've been following her work uh, on Twitter, or I guess it's X now. Uh, I, I follow her on television. Olivia Beavers is the congressional correspondent for Politico. Olivia, I don't know if we've been on TV together, but I have been following and reading your work for a long time. I can't think of anybody better to have on this morning to tell us what in the world is going on with the speaker vote? Where are we? I, I can't even keep track anymore. Olivia, where are we? That's a mess. And by the way, I like the dynamic that you get to ask the reporters the questions I know. now in return. <laughs> <laughs> it's more fun, I think, on that side. It's, it's a lot tougher answering. But um, I, I mean, in the Capitol, it's a complete mess. Um, mm. I think we're at a point where when the second speakership nominee, Steve Scalise, dropped out last week, you had Jim Jordan trying to get the votes. And there seems to be this coordinated effort to make it look like on each ballot, he doesn't have additional support. So you have more members jumping off. And if we go to a third ballot today or the next day, the plan is for him to lose more votes. Um, that's sort of like what the operation is behind the scenes. And so my understanding is, is that, you know, they're probably like looking for an off ramp, but trying to figure out how to do it in a way where he can politically save face. Um, that's not his message publicly. He's saying Jim Jordan and Kevin McCarthy are saying, you know, you had you had a you got to fight in January. Kevin McCarthy got to fight in January. I should get to have the same amount of time, but they're not going to do 15 ballots. It's a very different reality than it was in January. 
So, Olivia, if it looks like uh, Jim Jordan is going to lose more votes on a third ballot today, why even have why even have the vote? I mean, doesn't that seem start to get embarrassing? Yeah, so I think um, I think they're trying to decide if there's going to be what we expect a conference meeting. A lot of the, the people that I checked in with don't really know the plan for today. But one thing that they are looking at is a resolution from Dave Joyce, which is um, talking about empowering Patrick McHenry, who's basically the interim mm-hmm. speaker, uh, to give him power through the end of the beginning of next year or until the next speaker is picked. And now the Freedom Caucus really doesn't like this idea. But essentially, this might also be an off-ramp where it's you have someone running the House or able to pass you know, an Israel aid package and do other legislative agenda items, but um, you're not, you know, then Jim Jordan can technically keep running for the speakership um, on the yeah. side without sort of this pressure to, to open the House. So that's one of the things they're going to be discussing today, whether they get to a third ballot. Um, Jordan's spokesperson told me that they... They are expecting to have a third ballot. That's not really some of the chatter I'm hearing from other people who are raising doubts about whether that will come down. So, Olivia, the billion dollar question at this point, if not Jim Jordan, then who? Scalise has already dropped out. Uh, You know, they kicked Kevin McCarthy out. Matt Gates did on a on a whim. I think he's looking pretty stupid now for doing that. So if not Jordan, then who is who's up next? Well, That's the sort of tougher question, because now we're getting sort of into a group of candidates who don't have as much experience and they don't have those sort of across conference relationships. So every time I hear a name pop up, I have a couple of sources saying absolutely not um, Mm -hmm. in response. Jack Berman is one name. He's already starting to make phone calls saying that he will run for speaker. I think you're going to have like, you know, I would. okay. this is just a bet. This is like a hunch. But. If Jordan pulls out, watch like 10 people pop their names up, their heads up and and be putting their names because we're now sort of in this new territory where they're like, well, <laughs> why not me? Let me go for it. So one of the names that I heard is a, it's a good friend of mine, uh, Mike Gallagher, who heads the China committee. And as, as you just pointed out, you need somebody that has been able to work with the other side, possibly for this vote. Um, I'm assuming Mike doesn't want to touch us with a 10 foot pole. But what are you hearing about Mike Gallagher? So Mike Gallagher's name was being mentioned repeatedly. Um, As you said, I think he got asked by one of my colleagues whether he was interested, and he quickly dismissed that he does not want that role. Um, There's a joke that that's probably one of the worst jobs in Washington right now, especially if there's not a change to the motion to vacate, because all it takes is a few people coming in and saying, you didn't give me this, or I didn't like how you handle this, you're gone, um, if Democrats are willing to to cooperate. Um, So... Uh, you're you're sort of in handcuffs in in many different ways. Um, so Gallagher, I think, is um, watching that and saying, "I'll stick to my gavel on the China committee." Um, he's very policy savvy, and I think that that's right. the space that he wants to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, maybe this is kind of wild. I'm sure other people have mentioned this, but what about Kevin McCarthy? Could he just come back and say, "Don't miss me yet"? <laughs> I think that's definitely the tenor of his sort of when you ask him, um, you know, he's not discounting the idea um, and his allies are all saying, let's bring Kevin McCarthy back. But it's hard that there's eight Republicans voted to oust him and they're not going to back down from that. The Democrats won't back down unless they get major concessions, which he's not willing to give them, like stopping the impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden and um, and Hunter Biden. 
And so I don't see a path forward for him in that mm. way. He's still not, he's still kind of raising his hand in some regards, but saying, Hey, I'm an option. If you guys really <laughs> can't figure it out, but the eight, the eight from my understanding, my conversations are not going to backtrack. And at this point, um, he might've even lost more support. Yeah. I've heard them called the crazy eight, uh, which seems apropos, uh, you know, they, they dethrone the King without a plan. That makes a lot of, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, one of the people to join the crazy eight, which was a surprise to everybody was Nancy Mace, who's, who was in a, a, a somewhat moderate district, right? She's not in like a, a super safe, very right leaning district. She's in a moderate district. Um, what in the hell is going on with her, especially that scarlet letter t-shirt? Like, uh, can anyone explain why she's acting so contrary to, you know, what somebody normally in a district like that would, would act? I did, so I think that when you ask her about it, her claim is that Kevin McCarthy didn't keep his promise. I think there were several bills that she wanted to be brought to the floor. Some of them related to um, pushing for, uh, you know, rape kits for, for women and stuff like that. And that response is basically being laughed at pretty strongly by McCarthy camp, just being like, are you serious? This is, you didn't get your, your bill vote. Like he's, he talked to you about it and you're going to go and just eject him. So I think there's a lot of frustration, even more so for Mace than out of the other seven who voted to kick him out. Um, Interesting. She was someone who's, them. she's, she's more of a centrist. She wants to legalize marijuana. You know, um, she takes very different positions. Um, the Scarlet Letter really confused people. I also don't have a great answer for that. But, you know, if you're going to vote to kick out someone with the majority yeah. of support in your, in that, the House GOP conference, you should expect a lot of backlash. You should expect, like, the big donors to start being like, what are you doing? Because you're throwing the entire house into chaos. So I don't know why the, why the A, if she was surprised by the backlash, why did... <laughs> um, I got a text from know. House members who said... It's for attention or um, they found other words for A than adulterer. You know, I got to tell you, Olivia, I woke up the past few days and said, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Thank God I am not in the house right now. Um, tell me something that I, I, I'm also curious about. So the Democrats in the house, they have to be just sitting back and, you know, taking a laugh and looking their chops at what looks like Republican chaos. Um, what is the tone amongst the Democrats? Are, at what point do they go, maybe, and maybe this is the Democrats and the Problem Solvers Caucus. At what point did the Democrats go, okay, we've got to just, you know, get together and help get a, a speaker. Let's, let's vote someone in. Or, or will that even happen at all? I, I think that they're starting to say, let's empower McHenry to, to, mm-hmm. to be able to have more power is really where you're seeing it. And they go, we like him, we trust him. But ironically, that's sort of the same thing as a kiss of death for him politically with the Freedom yeah. Caucus. They're like, oh, anyone who is getting any praise from Hawking Jeffries should absolutely not be able to continue to be leading the House. So it's sort of that weird dynamic there. Um, with Democrats more broadly, you're getting different things. Some of them are saying, let's move on because we're, we can't even do any normal stuff. So they're frustrated yeah. just sitting there. There are some who are sitting there thinking, wow, this is so great for our, like, our chances of retaking the majority. They have the power and they're, they're squandering it. Um, so, or they were also sort yeah. of. And, and Olivia, we're quickly, we have to go. Can, can you get any business done in the House, any committee meetings, or is everything at a standstill? 
committee meetings, but really, there, nothing can really be brought to the floor because that's what the speaker controls and the rules committee, um, writing legislation. So everything is yep. really at a standstill. Well, thank you for that update. Olivia Beavers, congressional reporter from Politico. Give her a follow. You'll know what's going on in Congress if you follow her. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Morgan Ortegas in for Hugh Hewitt. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Well, thank you to Hugh Hewitt, living legend, radio, television legend. I am honored to fill in for him and to be with all of you uh, for the next hour. Uh, and I am super excited to bring in someone who's really become a good friend to me, who I know is going to be the next senator in Indiana, and that is the current congressman, uh, Jim Banks. Jim, good morning. How are you doing, my friend? Hey, good morning, Morgan. Good to be with you. It's going to be another wild and crazy day on Capitol Hill, but it's great to start my day with you. <laughs> You know, Jim, uh, I know you were running for the Senate, but I have heard your name mentioned uh, to be Speaker of the House in this chaos. I- I'm assuming you are uninterested. Well, I- I'm, uh, I'm, I'm focused on running for the Senate, but I am doing my job and I'm, I'm trying to do everything I can to rally Republicans to come to their senses. I mean, this is pure insanity. My, my grandpa always said, Morgan, the, he always said, they're the evil party and you guys are the stupid party. And we look really <laughs> stupid uh, these last couple of weeks. What these guys did to oust Speaker yeah. McCarthy has opened Pandora's box. And now we're living through really a tragic uh, period in Republican history where we can't get our act together and elect a speaker. We're going to vote for the third time today at noon. Uh, Jim Jordan is the speaker nominee, and I support him uh, fully. But if he if he doesn't make progress today and pick up more Republican votes, then I'm afraid that uh, the conference will move on. And I think it would be a big mistake for the conference to empower the speaker pro tem. It would be a terrible precedent. Not that I have anything against uh, Patrick McHenry, but it's a bad precedent that the House can't elect a speaker of the House with 217 votes. We have a Republican majority that the voters gave us in the last election to be a check on Joe Biden and the Democrats. And we can't get our act together and put a speaker in the speaker's chair that will advance our agenda and block their agenda. It would be a mistake to hand the majority over to Democrats. And I'm really afraid at this moment that that's that's exactly what's going to happen. and Jim, you can't do anything in the House right now. If, if I understand it, I haven't, I haven't worked in the House, but I know that we're seeing, uh, you know, 30 dead Americans, uh, in, I guess what is really arguably the largest terror attack to kill Americans since 9-11. We know at least 14, at least 14 of our fellow Americans are held hostage right now by a terror group. And, 
as long as you don't have a speaker, my understanding is the House can't do a single thing about it. Is that right? That, that's right. I mean, there are some theories. And actually, Speaker McCarthy spoke to this theory yesterday that um, the House, act, that the Speaker pro tem actually can move something forward. So watch, watch for that. Now, Patrick McHenry, the, the temporary speaker, says that can't happen. That ne- the House is paralyzed. Nothing can happen until we elect a Speaker of the House. There, so there are some competing theories about that. But at the end of the day, the the lack of Republicans' ability to put a speaker in the speaker's chair, to your point, is preventing us from doing what we need to do to support our most important and cherished ally in the world, that being Israel, and giving them the showing them the public support that they need and also the, the financial support that they need to fight back against Hamas and wipe Hamas off the map. So it is a, it, this is a shameful moment. I hate to I hate to speak ill of my own political party, Morgan, but this is a, a tragic moment in, in Republican Party history. And today we have a chance to move forward, elect a speaker. I, 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 to be honest, I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen. But my, my fear is that we'll turn this majority over to the, the Democrats and let our, leave our voters in a place where they're scratching their head. What, what's well, the point of putting yeah. you guys in charge to begin with? Well, Jim, I'm sure you're ready to get in the Senate for what you're running for in Indiana. You know, I just had a former senator on the show, Jim Talent from Missouri, and he was ex- expanding upon, uh, you know, why we need to build a bigger Navy. You're a Navy veteran. Uh, I'm a Navy veteran. Um, obviously, this is something that we both agree with. Uh, but what do you think can be immediately done, uh, Jim, as it relates to U.S. Uh, military posture and presence in the Middle East? We know that we have at least two aircraft carriers there. We know that we probably have more troops uh, on the way. You know, here we thought we were pivoting to Asia. And because of Biden's feckless policies in the Middle East, we're back in CENTCOM AOR. What do we do now? Well, we got to go back to what we know that works. And, it, you know, ironically, I'm speaking with you and you know this better than anybody. I mean, during the Trump administration, the maximum uh, uh, pressure campaign worked. It projected strength. It back. It rocked Iran back and we know Iran is ultimately responsible for the activities of Hamas and Hezbollah and their terrorist proxy groups. Uh, we know that Iran signed off on these attacks uh, against Israel that's left 1,400 Israelis and Americans dead. Um, so maximum pressure works, and we got to go back to it. And and you guys, you guys, um, you guys formulated that. You you uh, you enacted those policies that work that worked last Congress uh, in the, 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 the first two years of the Biden administration, I chaired something called the Republican study committee. And we, we introduced the maximum pressure act that was modeled after your policies with secretary Pompeo. And uh, we had 140 Republican co-sponsors of that bill. So, so next week I'm going down to the floor and I'm reintroducing that bill. And, and uh, actually secretary Pompeo was with us when we introduced it, a couple of years ago, I'm introducing it again with Kevin Hearn, the new chairman of the Republican Study Committee from Oklahoma, Joe Wilson okay. from South Carolina, and hopefully we can get every Republican to sign on to that bill to go back to those policies. But, but you're right, the, Na- the Navy is our greatest projector of strength and force around the world. I'm glad we're using it uh, to project that in the Middle East. Um, you know, what more can we do? Not not we can't do enough until we have a speaker of the House, not to go back to that um, that subject. But we've got to put a spe- speaker in the speaker's chair so that we can provide funding and support to keep 
the uh, Iron Dome and other efforts alive and, and active and, and strong in Israel to help them fight back. And we got to show public support. Yesterday, Capitol Hill was taken over by pro-Hamas. Uh, I was just uh, going to ask you about this. Just crazy. I can't believe there are that many people in this country who support a terrorist group that's, uh, that's killed uh, so many Israelis and Americans. And yet you have members of Congress who tweet and speak out in favor of Hamas, of their anti-Semitic and dangerous uh, uh, policies. And yesterday you had you had uh, protests where, where several people are, were arrested on Capitol Hill speaking out in support of the activities of Hamas. It's just a shameful moment. Uh, we're showing images of it right now uh, for people who are watching, who are not just listening, but are watching. Um, I notice all the masks on, on many of the protesters as well. That's a that's an interesting choice. Um, you know, one of the things that I love that Senator Rubio uh, was trying to introduce yesterday, and maybe when you get in the Senate, you can help him with this. Jim, Senator Rubio has said, if you're a foreign national here in a visa in the United States and you're caught promoting terrorism by supporting by supporting Hamas, you should be kicked out. Now, I don't think I think the Democrats protested and Rubio couldn't actually get a vote on that. But that sounds like pretty common sense policy to me. If you're not an American, if you're here by, you know, our good graces and you want to support terrorists, then get the you know what out. Yeah, I, I, I obviously what a, what a I, uh, that, that's that would be an obvious bill to pass. I know Senator Cotton and others have been looking at how we can expel students on college campuses uh, good. as well. And hold, hold some of these uh, universities, even in my home state, that have put out weak statements, um, either either uh, showing some support for uh, Hamas or, or not fully calling out their atrocities. And, you know, those universities should be held accountable, too. Yeah. So I fully support what Senator Rubio and Cotton and a lot of others are trying to do on that front. And we should be we the irony here, Morgan, is that we have the majority in the House. And we should be passing yeah. bills right now that uh, Rubio is in the minority in the Senate. Uh, we're in the majority in the House. We should be passing that bill out of the House. We can't do it without a speaker. You know, there is like an institutional rot on these college campuses that have that has been exposed. Um, it is unbelievable. The anti-Semitism, the, the pro terrorism, uh, you know, the being pro Hamas is being pro terrorist, right? They're a designated terrorist entity. And, and Jim, tell me, tell me what you're seeing in Indiana. Are, are you seeing the college campuses in Indiana having these same protests that we're seeing around the country? Yeah, I, I sadly, I hate to admit it. My alma mater, Indiana University has flopped on this subject too, and they're taking a lot of heat for it. And I, I hope that I hope the donors, that there have been some notable examples around the country of major donors to these universities saying enough is enough, I'm not giving any more money to my yeah. my university, my alma mater that, that isn't strong on this subject. So hopefully we see more, a lot more of that and maybe, around the country. And Jim, maybe we can take federal funding away from some of these universities, too. I mean, if you're going to be pro-terrorist group, I don't want you to have my tax dollars. Jim uh, Banks, congressman from Indiana, the next senator from the state of Indiana. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Morgan Ortegas. I'll be back with you after the break in for Hugh Hewitt for the rest of the hour. Thanks for listening. Good morning across America. We have a little under 30 minutes left of this show. If you're tuning in now for the first time and you were expecting to hear Hugh Hewitt, well, I am sadly not Hugh Hewitt, but I am Morgan Ortegas. I am guest hosting for Hugh Hewitt today. You may remember me from the Trump administration where I was Mike Pompeo's spokesperson at the State Department, but I've spent most of my career working in 
counterterrorism, intelligence, uh, living in and out of the Middle East. And I am very, very, very sad uh, to see what has gone on in Israel. I'm devastated at the loss of 30 Americans on October 7th as well. Uh, but I am honored, actually, to have someone who is running for president and who also is a governor and someone who I think has just impressed all of us uh, on the debate stage, and that is Governor Burgum. Doug Burgum, are you there, sir? I sure am, Morgan, and so great to be with you on the Hugh Hewitt Show. And uh, Boy, I was thrilled to be uh, with you at the uh, National Security Forum uh, last week in Iowa. You did such a fantastic job moderating that panel with Senator Ernst and your knowledge and depth of this. It's just, I tell you, as a governor, as a candidate, talk to someone like you that actually understands what's going on in the world is a real joy. Well, thank you so much, Governor. I, I love being in New Hampshire with you on Friday. Uh, we, we're seeing much, much of you on the campaign trail. You know, I told you one of the things that I was so impressed about in that very first debate uh, is that it wasn't the former, you know, uh, foreign policy people, ambassadors or other people on the stage that brought up China. It was you, the governor. Uh, so so tell us, you know, we are spending a lot of our morning talking about the Middle East, talking about Israel as we should. But, Governor, I am watching overnight the pictures and the videos and the images of Putin and Xi Jinping in China at the Belt and Road Conference smiling, grinning, laughing, and, and basically mocking the West. What should our viewers know about what Putin and Xi Jinping are up to? Well, this is a, a dangerous combination. And then you throw in their connections with Iran and North Korea, and they're basically trying to establish a new world order. And the new world order does not include a new world order that's about democracy and liberty and freedom and, and U.S. leadership. Uh, this whole Belt and Road uh, summit that they're having, they have 150 countries that showed up. And we just put China and Russia together. You take China's trillion dollars of loans, and then you take Russia's uh, oil powerhouse exports that there is China's gas gas station. Uh, the two of them, of course, it's appealing for all these developing countries uh, to come together. And Putin, she spent three hours together. Uh, they're they're like locked at the hip at, at this conference, right. and he's being treated. Putin is reverses being treated like a mob boss that, that kills his enemy. He's being treated as the, the guest of honor at this global summit by Xi. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I often remind people, Governor, that Putin and Xi Jinping have met with each other over the past decade more times than they have met with any other world leaders. This is clearly a bromance, uh, so to speak. But one of the things, you know, staying on the scene, one of the things that you talked about in New Hampshire last Friday that I thought was so poignant, and, and I'd love for you to expand upon this, is, uh, and, and I know a lot of our viewers have listened to this, is that the ability of the Chinese to buy up American farmland and what you have done in North Dakota to stop it. Can you just expand on that issue a bit more? Well, well, happy to, because in North Dakota, we've got among the strongest, uh, not just anti-foreign country ownership. If you're a U.S. corporation, a U.S. corporation, if you cannot buy farmland in North Dakota, if you are two unrelated U.S. citizens that want to form a little company and come in North Dakota, you can't buy it. It's got to be owned by family members together is how we manage farmland. And so this is something that, again, you can't have national security without border security, and you can't have national security without energy security, and you can't have national security without food security. And so this is something that we just have to make sure that we're uh, stopping the Chinese from these investments of our land and our food resources, including the production of resources uh, downstream from that farmland. 
You know, one of the things that, um, ha- that, that we talked about on Friday, but that, that you've talked about at length, and, and listen, I hope whether you are the president or whether you are, whatever you do, governor, whatever you do, you would be such a good national leader on this issue. And that's the issue of our supply chains, of our manufacturing abilities or lack thereof, especially as it relates to the defense industrial base. And we seem uh, just, it seems impossible for us, Governor, to produce the munitions that we need, to produce the ships that we need, to produce the military hardware, the subs that we need in a timely manner. How in the world do we fix this? I mean, we've got war breaking out all around the world, and we can't build anything. Well, absolutely, Morgan. And and this is why we just say when we when I look up and down the debate stage and I realize that I've created more jobs than every other candidate on the stage combined, not one of them, but all combined and have spent over 30 plus years leading and building and creating businesses in the private sector and then working with people that sell technology to everybody, including the defense technology companies. So I've worked with all of them as customers and we have got such a catharsis in the federal government with the procurement process and with the rulemaking and with the lobbyists. I mean, we've had like 40% of the defense contractors that are small in size have gone out of business in the last decade because it it keeps favoring the large manufacturers. We have a defense budget that's going to get crushed because of our, our weak economy and our high debt, our debts, what we're the interest on the U S debt will now soon surpass what we spent on defense and what we yeah. spend on defense, only 15% of it goes to procurement. And then when we procure stuff, that takes years or decades. And so we've got to cut the red tape the way we've done that in my state. Go through and just cut. We passed 51 more red tape reduction bills this last year. We've got to speed up our ability to respond. And if we tell Taiwan we'll get you harpoon missiles in 2029 instead of yesterday, that gives Xi four years to go in and blockade or invade that island. We've got to be faster in what we do as a country. Is it, it, Governor, is it fixable at the federal level? Like, I, I understand that it's fixable at the, at the, the state level, what you've done, but it, it seems like so many members of Congress that I know and respect have tried to tackle this issue, and nobody makes a dent in it. Well, part of it is we've got a, a whole set of leaders in Washington, D.C. that don't trust markets. They think that federal one-size-fits rules all, you know, one size fits all rules for everything, whether it's environmental issues, whether it's, it's manufacturing, whether it's competition. And, you know, I came from an industry in technology and software where there were, it was wide open. There was no tariffs. There was no subsidies. It was raw competition. And guess what? U.S. led the world. American, if you give us an open playing field and let entrepreneurs and innovators roll on this stuff, we're gonna, that's how we're going to win. Innovation is how we win the Cold War with China. It's how we win the proxy war we're in with Russia and now with Iran. And and we and, and those are things we have to do. But we've also got to stop this crazy stuff that Joe Biden is doing. You're talking about funding. He's funding both sides of the war in Ukraine and he's funding both sides of the war yeah. that's happening in Israel because of the aid that's going to Iran and the lifting of the sanctions on countries like Venezuela and Iran on oil exports is funding both sides of these conflicts. You know, Governor, when I was uh, in in the federal government in the Trump administration, one of my biggest frustrations is I did not have the ability really to hire and fire somewhat on the hiring side. But I definitely I could move people out of my office. It was hard to do so. But there is no accountability in the federal workforce. How do we tackle that? Well, we have to we have to change that. And now is the ideal time. We've got to stop this protectionism of jobs 
uh, that we have on the government side, particularly when we have 10 million jobs open in this economy. If someone if someone rolls out of the federal government and goes back to the private sector, uh, that's going to that's good for taxpayers. It's good for the deficits, good for all kinds of things. And it is it's and it's good for our country. And we have we have so much so much again in federal every inside of every federal job there's at least 20% of what every one of those jobs includes is some mind numbing soul sucking work that even the federal employees don't want to do because it doesn't have any value we got to start treating the taxpayers like customers and then we have to design jobs and work that has meaning and then we have to go get to work getting it done and this is why in our state i cut 27% out of the general fund that not slowed the growth of spending actually cut spending and then all the trains still left on time because we're able to do things more efficiently. We're 30 years behind on technology in every aspect of government. I mean, the basic stuff that any even small business would do, we're still running paper around in the federal government, including down yeah. at the southern border. They're processing paper down there. Yeah. Uh, you know, Governor, uh, I love hearing you talk. I could hear you talk about these issues for hours. I wish that we had hundreds of people like you uh, in the Congress, in the federal workforce that understand business. Uh, but but going back to uh, Israel and, and that conflict right now, uh, we saw that as President Biden was basically as he was boarding Air Force One yesterday to go to Israel, the king of Jordan, leaders in Egypt and around the Middle East, cancel his meeting as he's walking up the stairs to Air Force One. You're running for president. Why do you think people who take billions of dollars from us, by the way, in economic and military aid, why do they feel emboldened to cancel on the president last minute? Well, I I think it's just a function of how much uh, respect we've lost as a country. When we project weakness, we get conflict. And whether it's pulling out of Afghanistan uh, whether it's, uh, again, you know, helping Iran get get closer to nuclear weapons. Uh, lots of people are not happy with it around the world. And then, of course, Joe Biden's got his own issues because his own party, you know, is protesting at the Capitol yesterday on, on the side of the terrorists. And so it, it's, it, it, if, they, if they're looking at that and going, well, his own party is disrespecting him, then why, would, why do we care about all this? And meanwhile, we've probably got officials that are in China today you know, meeting with Xi and Putin, you know, lining up to get their resources. And so, again, we're competing for who's going to be in charge in the world. And right now we've got someone instead of strength through, you know, peace through strength. I mean, we're getting conflict through weakness. I mean, what Joe Biden is doing is actually creating some of the wars that we're in is the weakness that we have on economy, energy and national security is what's triggering these, these activities. Well, we have uh, my friends, ladies and gentlemen, Governor Doug Burgum uh, understands business, understands how to run a state, understands foreign policy just as much as anybody, if not more, on that debate stage. Governor, it's an honor to have you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm Morgan Ortegas in for Hugh Hewitt. We have 15 minutes left. Join us after the break. Good morning around America. I'm not Hugh Hewitt. I am Morgan Ortegas. I have just had the most amazing three hours with all of you. I know that you're loyal listeners of Hugh Hewitt, and I appreciate you being with me today. Now, I am very excited because not only do I have an amazing, new, young, fresh senator, I have my girlfriend, uh, just an awesome woman, a leader in the Senate already, the senator from the state of Alabama, Katie Britt. Good morning, Katie. Morgan, I am 
so glad to be on. Thank you so much uh, for, for letting me come on and be in front of um, Hugh's listeners. And I have just in, um, been so proud to watch you this week um, continue to defend Israel and the Jewish people and, and making it very, very clear that America stands with them. Thank you so much, Katie. You know, I, I appreciate that. I, I know you had told me that. And, and my immediate reaction is, you know, what choice do we have? Are we going to stand by the terrorists, Katie, uh, by Hamas? Yeah. Or are we going to stand with the state of Israel? And, and Katie, tell me, you know, you're in the Senate. Do you think President Biden and his team are doing enough to support Israel after this heinous terrorist attack? Look, Morgan, you know, you've seen this up close, personal. You've seen how it's done correctly. You were there under Secretary Pompeo. You were there under President Trump. Under President Trump's administration, uh, we actually saw what peace through strength meant. Now, unfortunately, with the continued appeasement of the Biden administration from day one, obviously moving off of the maximum pressure posture that President Trump had put us in, um, obviously the so-called hostage swap, which was disgraceful in and of itself. But in, in addition to what they did, they, they added $6 billion on top of that. You and I both know money is fungible. You and I both know that Iran is the largest state sponsor of terror across the entire globe. And we know that they not only fund, but they train Hamas in Gaza and West Bank. They train Hezbollah in Lebanon, and they train the Houthis in Yemen. We know um, how to stop this. We've got to actually continue to just squeeze out any financial resources that they have. Um, you know how to do that. So I am hopeful. I appreciate what the president did as far as sending the aircraft carriers in, um, showing that deterrence. I appreciate him stepping foot on Israeli soil um, to make sure that the that the world knew that we as Americans stand with Israel, but I want us to continue to do more. Obviously, getting the munitions that were um, already appropriated through the FY23 appropriations process, getting those quickly into their hands, into the Israelis' hands, uh, is critically important. Um, we've got to continue to make sure they have what they need, whether it's interceptors, batteries, etc., to make sure that David Sling and Iron Dome are at full capacity and ready to, to continue to protect um, the, the people of Israel. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is a senator who knows her stuff that you're hearing from. I, I want to make a little bit of a pivot, uh, Katie, because you're senator. I should call you senator, even though you're a good friend of mine. You, you, you've earned the title. Um, but, but Katie, you were so impressive a few weeks ago. This went viral on the Internet. You were talking about the border and the plight of, of women and what's happening to them at the border. Can you just expand upon what happened in that press conference and where that passion came from when you were speaking about our southern border? So, Morgan, one of the things that I did immediately upon entering the United States Senate was go to the border. I went three times in two months, and that's because I don't think anyone can can tell you what's happening. You can't read what's happening and fully right. comprehend it. You have to, to see it. And so listening to the stories of these women, these women who were raped, and when they begin to tell you, Morgan, they tell you the details of, of having to lay in the bed while these men come in and out of the room. They tell you um, about being trafficked. It, mm. it, they tell you about watching people lose their lives on the journey there. And we see that the only people winning it is, it, there is no, nothing humanitarian about the open border policies of the Biden administration. The only people winning are the drug cartels. So it is open season for drug cartels 
human traffickers, and terrorists. And I think seeing what we're seeing now, obviously we all saw the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the hotbed of terrorism that was created there. Morgan, now seeing what we're seeing with Hamas and, and those terrorists and and just um, the the gut-wrenching and, and just um, disgusting acts of terror mm-hmm. that they on the Israeli people, we know that we have an open border. I mean, if you look over the last two years, We've had 659 people from Iran. We've had at least 164 from Lebanon cross the border, 538 from Syria, and 139 from Yemen. And, Morgan, that's just what we know about. And we know what's happening with fentanyl in our nation. It's the leading cause of death between the ages of 18 and 45. Uh, What we don't know is who all is coming in. The known gotaways themselves are 1.5 million under this administration. But just in in the first two weeks, listen to this, the first two weeks, of October, we had 18,000 known gotaways coming into our country. We have got wow. to secure our southern border, uh, the, the safety and security of our communities um, and of our children depend on it. And so we've got to start speaking truth to what is happening and just saying this is a humanitarian and a national yeah. security crisis. We wouldn't let it happen in a third world country, Morgan. We certainly shouldn't ha- let it happen in the United States of America. Well, now you all see why I just love my friend Katie Britt. She is just a a warm, welcome, bright new voice in the United States Senate. Thank you so much, Senator Katie Britt. Uh, Thank you to Hugh Hewitt's audience. This is Morgan Ortegas. I have been on all morning. I'll be guest hosting next week for a day as well. I hope you enjoyed it. I cannot wait to be back. Have a great day, America. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.